I mean, we sang victory in Jesus and living hope. I mean, are you loving it? I know I am. Uh, it's a great Sunday to be here. How many of you believe Jesus is coming back? How many of you believe it's going to happen before I'm done with this message? And some of you are thinking, well, it depends on how long this message is going to be. A friend of mine uh, who's since passed, Dr. Peters, uh, many of you know, uh, he came up to me one day at church, and, and he's a doctor, and he looked at me kind of intently, he said, Kevin, do you have prostate cancer? And I said, no. And he said, how do you know? And I said, I don't have any symptoms. And he said, there are no symptoms for early stages of prostate cancer. And I said, well, I guess I don't know. And he said, you're about the age, it's time to get checked. <laughs> All of a sudden I'm thinking, I don't know if I do or not. And I did get checked. That's how it is with Jesus. We know he's coming back, but is he coming back in the next 10 minutes? We don't know. We don't know. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit. It's going to take us a while to get there, but we are in a, a series called The Seven Churches of Revelation, and we are on church number six, and the sixth church is called Philadelphia. It's the city of Philadelphia. That's where their church is at. We've talked about all these churches are in Turkey, uh, the Algian Sea. John is writing them from exile. All the other uh, original disciples have been killed. He's, he's the last one. He's in exile. He's writing these churches, and uh, there's a portion of this letter addressed to each church, but the whole letter is to all the churches, and messengers are taking them around. We're on the sixth one out of seven, and it's all about the church in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia had been founded less than 200 years prior to this by King Attalus, and he was known in the Lydian kingdom, we talked about it a little bit before, he was known for his loyalty and love to his brother, his older brother who actually had the crown before him, and they established this city, and because of his loyalty to his brother, they had a nickname for me, it's called Philadelphias. And we know Philadelphia means brotherly love. And so Philadelphus is what they called him. He's loyal, loved his brother. And then later he ended up with the crown when his brother died. But anyway, they established that city. The city got the nickname of Atlas. And so that's why they call it Philadelphia. And it was located in a region of Turkey where there's a lot of, of volcanic ash. And because of that, the soil was especially suited to growing grapes, and they were sort of famous for the grapes that they grew. Maybe because of that, uh, they worshipped a god, uh, Dionysus, Dionysus, and uh, the god Dionysus is the god of wine, and so they celebrated their god of wine with annual festivals, and we could pretty much guess what that was like, you know, just a drunken orgy is basically how they celebrated their god of wine. And so that's the nature of the place. It was actually founded in some major crossroads, which a lot of these cities were, but it was an outpost. Remember, this region of Turkey, this is where East Asia meets West Europe, and so it kind of converges here. And because of the routes going into Asia, this was meant, Philadelphia, a city 
to where they would spread Greek culture and Greek language, and, uh, and they did that very effectively. But the reason that we really need to tune in to what Jesus says through John to the church in Philadelphia is because this church is only one of two of the seven churches that Jesus did not correct. They, did, they weren't doing anything wrong. They were not rebuked. So we want to know what they did because we want to be a church like that, right? And to be a church like that, we need to be people like that because the church is just a group of people uh, who have come together to follow Jesus. So that's what we're doing. Remember, so here's this church in Philadelphia. Unlike some of the other churches, they didn't lose their first love. They did not compromise with the culture they weren't tolerant of sin, and they were alive. So a lot like Smyrna, they got it right. And so the first thing we notice as we dive in to this uh, part of Scripture in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, the first thing that we notice is this is Jesus, right? John's dictating what Jesus is saying, and then in every section where he addresses different church, he describes himself, Jesus does, in a different way, a unique way. Here's how he does it here. And to the angel or messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write. And so he's saying, this is from me. He who is holy, holy means set apart, completely sinless, pure, uh, unblemished, flawless. He who is holy, who is true, and that speaks truth, but here, mainly, this means he who is true is, means genuine, the real deal. And, and remember, because some people, uh, people in the synagogues, most Christians, you know, Christianity started with Jewish people, and it spread mainly through the synagogues, but then the people of the synagogue would have to decide. Some would say, yeah, Jesus was the Messiah, and some would say not. The ones not would kick the other ones out. That's, and he's saying, who is true, he is the real deal, the legitimate son of God, the Messiah, describing himself, who has the key of David. Same thing. Uh, the Jewish people are saying, hey, we have the key of David. We have the keys to the Davidic kingdom and what God's doing and the messianic kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, I have the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So that's Jesus describing himself. Hey, what I open no one can shut what I shut. Nobody can open in this kind of open and shut. Is saying, you know, he alone has the power to exclude or to admit into his kingdom. And so now this church now says this. So we're getting ready to hear what he says. Because this church, they crushed their performance review. All right, anybody have performance review? Okay, here it is. Jesus giving them the scoop. They don't have any correction. Anybody being corrected in a performance review? Yeah, that's what we're seeing in most of the churches, but not this one. They crushed it, and so we want to tune in and see exactly what's going on there. What the people at Philadelphia, the Philadelphian church, what they got right is what he's talking about here. Now, um, so before we start, let's just remind ourselves. Are there any perfect churches? No. No. Are there any perfect Christians? Are there any perfect pastors? Now think now. Okay, all right, no, yeah, no, no, 
No, there's no perfect churches, no perfect Christians, no perfect pastors, but there are faithful churches. And that's what we have here. Faithful Christians who listen and do what Jesus says. So verse eight, here's how he starts. He says this. I know your deeds. You know, he's all, he knows all of our deeds. He knows what's going on. He's omniscient. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Now, this open door is sort of reflective of two things. Number one, he has opened to them the door of salvation, and Jesus is the door of salvation Because we're all sinners, we've all done wrong before God, we all deserve punishment if God is truly holy and just and righteous, which is a problem, but there's nothing we can do to undo our sin, but Jesus comes, lives a perfect life that we couldn't live, and then he pays the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross, and he invites people to come in, and you only get there through faith. It's not works, you can't earn it, it's all through faith. He opens this door to us. They took advantage of the open door. But the other way this applies is open doors in the New Testament always describe opportunities to share Christ with people who don't know Christ. So he says, I've put before you an open door which no one could shut because you have little power. And we're going, hold it. This church is crushing it, but they have little power. This is actually not a slam It's a compliment. What he's saying is, hey, you have a little power. You're not a big church. This is one of the smaller cities and one of the smaller churches. Hey, you're a small church, probably a poorer church, but yet you've made this huge impact. You have little power and have kept my word. This is it. You want to stand faithful to God? You keep God's word. That's the Bible. We have all this pressure in our culture to get away from the Bible, to not emphasize the Bible. The other thing is, I am amazed at the people around us, our neighbors, our friends, people in our city, our county, who they talk like they're believers, like they respect Jesus. They talk like they're moral people, but they're really not, they either don't know or don't care what God has to say about things. And so there's always this temptation to not keep God's word, to not uphold God's word. And here's how it happens to Bible-believing people. You love God, you love your family, and then all of a sudden somebody in your family adopts a lifestyle that's wrong. And that can be heterosexual or homosexual, just any lifestyle that's completely out of sync with God's word. And they do that, and then what you do or what you're tempted to do, and many people do this, is rather than rock the boat, they pretend like how their family member is living is okay with God because they honor their relationship more than keeping God's word. But what God is asking us to do is when we're in relationship people, we love people. We love God, love people. So we love people. We want to keep the relationship but not at the expense of God's word. Does that make sense? So we keep the relationship, but we tell them in love, hey, I love you. You're involved in, you know, whatever going on. We're all sinners, but man, your whole life is characterized by this. You need to pull out of that. God doesn't want you to do that. God says that's wrong. That's not gonna be good for you. That's gonna be destructive in your life. You can say, look at the stats or whatever, 
But God says no. And so you love them, but you tell them the truth. And then they may pull back, but you let the chips fall. Because you're keeping the word. Not relationship before the word. Does that make sense? So, kept my word. That's being obedient. Rather than trying to change God's word to fit our lifestyle. Oh, well, I think, you know, the God that I know, you know, my God would say this is, you know. No, well, your God is just a made up God. God has revealed himself in his word. He's revealed him, the true God. And so... We want to be obedient, not try to change God's word, just submit to it, even if it offends us, which it does, all of us at some point. We all sin. So how do you keep his word? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to know the word. And so knowing the word is reading the Bible or listening to it on apps or coming here to grace. I mean, church is God's idea. Jesus founded the church. Jesus said we should come to church. And why? So we understand more about God's word. But it's not just church. It's not just us in this room. We have opportunities, many more opportunities. The main, the main thing to me is I'm thinking, boy, if you're coming to church anyway, do you realize you could come an hour early if you come to second, if you're here, or if you come to first service, stay an hour later, and you can go to a, a, a class, and they will you know, do the same thing so you could get Double bang for your buck. Who likes that? Double bang for your buck. You can do that. I mean, you're coming anyway. You're already here. Just stay another hour or come an hour earlier and you get double bang. Like, for example, we have all these adult classes that you can find in your bulletin that are doing different topics. You know, we're in Revelation. Tim is just finishing a series on the entire book of Revelation. You know, I'm just saying, look at that, take advantage. And of course, it's not just on Sundays. Youth, you know, they have groups on Sundays. But on Wednesdays, you know, that's when youth has, has their main thing. And then there's, uh, diff- there's two different women's classes. There's a men's class. There, Forrest does a class, you know, that has all kinds of people in it in the chapel. And then we have classes specifically, you know, for uh, substance abuse or, or life issues that Ed leads you know, that's on, on Wednesday night. And not only that, during the week, we have meetings at people's houses, meetings here at the church, not on Sunday or Wednesday. I'm just saying, take advantage of the opportunities to not only know God's word, but to wrestle with how to figure out to apply it in your life. One of the things that I miss most about teaching here is because you don't have the give and take that you do when you teach in other venues that are a little smaller and people say well I have a question about that you know we have room one where you can come and ask afterwards it's kind of nice sometimes to be able to go through and, and deal with all that so why do we do that for greater understanding of God's word so that we can keep it meaning apply it to our lives and then the third thing they got right and have not denied my name because that's the pressure to deny his name they're under persecution like all these churches. They're under persecution from Rome. They're under persecution from Jewish people. And a lot of them are Jewish people. But the Jewish people in the synagogue that did not accept Jesus as Messiah, they're persecuting them. So they're catching it from all sides, persecution. Yet, the, these people in Philadelphia have not denied his name. They kept standing. They refused to deny 
Jesus. And we need to do the same thing. And we need sometimes to double check our lives, how we are at work, how we are at school, you know, how we are when our family gets together, whatever. And by our behavior, by our conversation, are we denying Jesus? Maybe not even intentionally. But people say things to us that deny Jesus and we don't stand up. We don't refute that. You say, well, that's not what I believe. Are we denying Jesus? He's saying to us, stay strong in Christ because we're his forever. So now because of their faithfulness, Jesus gives them some amazing promises. Because they have took full advantage of the open door that Jesus gave them, salvation and sharing with others, and they were faithful, here's what he promises to them beginning in verse 9. He says this, Behold, I will cause those of the, Satan, of the synagogue of Satan. Okay, synagogue of Satan. We've actually seen this once before, I think in the, at least in this series. Why, Jesus is saying synagogue of Satan. What's that mean? He's talking about their local synagogue who would say we're the ones that are actually following God right. But typically what's happened, like what happened in Ephesus, we don't know, we don't have any record that Paul was in this city, but he was in Ephesus and we believe it was people from Ephesus that started this church. It's nearby. And what happened in Ephesus? Jesus, uh, Paul came in, went to the synagogue, shared them about Christ, did that for several months. The people then had to make a choice. They believed Jesus was a Messiah or they didn't. The ones that didn't then took control of the synagogue, kicked the other ones out, the Christians. Then in Ephesus, we know that Paul found, uh, was able to obscure, uh, get some space in a school of Tyrannius or whatever, and he taught there the Christian way for over two years. And so he had a ministry there for three years, and he did all that. Well, now... Jesus is saying, hey, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, these people who think they're following me, but they're actually not. They're following Satan. They don't know that, but they are. Who say that they are Jews and are not. Well, what's that mean? Well, racially, they're Jews. But Jesus is saying, they're saying they're part of my family, but they're not. And this is a lot Again, this is John writing this, but it's a lot like what Paul wrote to the Romans church in Romans chapter 2 when he explained to them, people say they're Jews, but they're only Jews outwardly. They dress like Jewish people, they are racially Jewish people, but and they're circumcised. You can't really see that, but they're marked in their flesh as Jewish people. But then Paul would say, but they're not true Jews Because to be truly part of God's family, God's people, you have to be a Jew on the inside, they're saying, and experience the circumcision of your heart by the Holy Spirit, he says in Romans 2. So it's not enough to be something on the outside, you should be it on the inside. So who say they are Jews, and Jesus says, and are not, but lie, I will make them Come down and bow at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So what's the promise here? You guys have been faithful. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Some of the people are persecuting that you've been trying to win to Christ. I'm going to make them eat their words, realize that they were wrong, actually accept Christ and come to you and say, you are right. 
I was wrong. How, you know, I, I accept me into the fellowship of Christians. You know, let's do this and, and join the church. How many of you, it's kind of like eating crow, right? How many of you had to do that? Anybody? Yeah, I'm the only, okay, I'm three of us. It's not a pleasant experience where you've done something that's wrong, you have an argument, you're wrong, and then you have to go back and say, I was wrong, you were right. He's, this is a promise. Hey, your enemies, some of them who are persecuting you, they're gonna repent and come you know, and realize that no, God did have his love on these people where they were saying, no, God can't love you, God loves us, we're the synagogue. So that's what's going on, that's the first thing. Now, the faithfulness of the church is rewarded by these people that they're trying to win, they're actually persecuting them, repent. Second thing, the, he, Jesus also promises to keep the faithful out of a future event called the tribulation. Now, all of Revelation is about the future, and we're going over these seven churches that are not as much about the future, but in this letter, portion of the letter to Philadelphia, it is about the future. Here's what he says in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'll explain that in a bit, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. So that phrase, hour of testing, a time of testing, he is talking about the seven years of tribulation or Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble, which is called different things in the Bible. That hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So we're gonna get back to that. But here's what he's saying. Because you believers in Philadelphia, because you have withstood the persecution and the test, and because you have remained faithful, he gives them a promise. Because you've stood that persecution, I will not allow you to go through a greater tribulation I will not allow you to go to the main problem that's going to happen coming out this future event because you've already been through this. I'm going to exempt you from that. And this is not just a, tr a promise to them, but to all faithful believers. He's saying, I'm going to take you out of that. I'm going to remove you from that. Well, when he says that, he's referring to an event that we call taking out, we call the rapture. And some of you never heard the word rapture. That's okay. It's just in the future, God's saying, I'm going to remove my church out of the earth. So the rapture is not exactly taught here. It's just referred to here. Where it's taught is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, John 14. But where, where we get the most information about it is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so that's where I want us to go and this is talking about a pre-tribulation, meaning before the seven years of problems, the church is taken out. And here's what it says. But we, okay, let me give you the context. So this is Paul writing to a different church in Thessalonica, which is just across the Algean Sea from where these people are at. And these people, Paul has spent some time with them, and he writes them two letters after he had been there, and it's obvious that while he was there, he talked a lot about future events and prophecy because he keeps answering a bunch of questions about that in his letters. So now he's writing them the first time, and they have some questions because they know, hey, Jesus is coming back. 
and all these things are going to happen. And Paul's taught them about all these things. And so they're all set. Yeah, Jesus is going to return. He's going to snatch us out of here. And this, this, this is going to happen. But then people in their church start dying. Whether they're killed by persecution or they just naturally die. People start dying. And then the people in their church are like, hold it. Wait a minute. They're missing everything. We're waiting for this promise, Jesus coming back, and they're missing it because they died. What's going to happen to them? And so now Paul is answering that question as he writes 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. And then he's using the word asleep, just like we do as a euphemism or a metaphor for death. So here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. They've died. So that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Grieve as believers, when we're a believer and we know somebody that we love who is a believer dies, we grieve, but we don't grieve like normal people grieve, right? Our grief is different because we know this isn't the end, this is not absolute, that we know because they're a believer and because I'm a believer that we will be reunited in the presence of Christ in the future, so it's different. And then he says, so here, we don't grieve like the rest of people, why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we're Christians, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. God will bring with those who have died. Continues. And now he's saying this to explain that. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul's saying, I got this from Jesus. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He continues, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up or snatched away or taken out. I say caught up because that word rapture is actually the Latin, which Latin really has nothing to do with the Bible, but people in early times learned in Latin. That's just the Latin phrase meaning caught up is what rapture means. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, you're bummed because people have died and they're missing all these future things that we were, we were talking about. Guess what? They're not going to miss it. When somebody dies, their soul, who they really are, their spirit, is with God immediately in the presence of God. And what do we do with their, their body? Well, we cremate it or bury it or whatever. And he's saying, but they're not going to miss it. When I come back, I'm bringing with me those who have died, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means all the remains of those people I have with me will be resurrected and glorified and reunited in glorified bodies. So now all of a sudden, boom, we have a heavenly body like how we think of heaven. And then, right after that happens, I am gonna pull up, catch up, snatch away, bring out of the world all those Christians. So that's what we call the rapture. That happens. And so that is, and that happens before a time period, the hour of testing that we call either Daniel's 70th week, if you're reading Daniel chapter 9, or we call it time of Jacob's trouble, you know, or we call it 
uh, the seven years of tribulation, the week, the year thing is all connected, that Revelation talks about. So does that make sense? Kinda. Okay, if some of you are going, that made no, I've never heard of that, it makes no sense, just hang with us, all right? Now I wanna go back and read verse 10 that you have this in your mind because this is kind of what's being described here. Because you have kept the word, we've already talked about that, been obedient to God, didn't dismiss it, try to get around it, wink it away. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. So in this kept the word of my perseverance, some uh, translations would translate this, because you kept my command to endure patiently. Because you kept my word, that's his commands, to endure, to persevere, like I've wanted you to do that. So because you kept my command to endure patiently or to persevere during all the trials you've been through, I will also keep you from, and this from is key, because some people would say, well, yeah, Jesus does that, but he doesn't do that till the end of the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation or three quarters through the tribulation. But actually, this word keep you from is keep you out of. It's not keep you through. He's already kept them through other issues, other persecution. But this future one, he's going to take them out of. I will keep you from the hour of testing and that hour, which is about to come upon the whole world. Now, testing, an hour in testing, is tests reveal what's true or not. This will test people to have them figure out Okay, are you repenting to be right with God? Or are you going to stay in your stubborn, you know, denial of Christ? I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. He is not talking about something that just happens to the church in Philadelphia. He's talking about a will come, a future event that's going to come upon the whole world. And now he's talking to the Philadelphian church as representative of all true believers. You won't have to go through that to test those who dwell on the earth. And in Revelation, as you're reading through Revelation, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is just a way of referring to non-believing people who are on the earth during the times of what he's talking about. Does that now kind of make more sense, verse 9. All right. And the way we know that he's talking about, hey, he's talking about when he's coming back, is the very next phrase in the very next verse says, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. This reaffirms what Jesus said, what Peter said, what Paul said, what John said, hey, I am coming quickly, that we live in an attitude that Jesus can come at any time. We're living knowing we could return. Hey, do I know that I have a certain type of cancer that has no symptoms? No, I have to get checked. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. And so then he goes on to say, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He's saying, keep standing, you're doing it right, don't mess it up, don't let somebody come along and make you stumble and cause you not to believe, which will only show that you really never understood the gospel because when you're his, you're his forever. And then he gives us some eternal promises that I wanna cover next. 
But when we're his, we're his forever. Some of you know that a couple weeks ago, Pam and I took two of our grandkids out west. So we have this tradition when they turn around five years old that we take them camping in the mountains. And so two cousins, our grandkids, we took out uh, Jim and Weston to the mountains. We went out there. We camped on the way out. We were out there in the Rockies. We camped on the way back. On the way back, we were camping in Council Bluffs, and I knew that there was a rodeo south of Council Bluffs. And so as we were camping, I knew we, we had time to go check out this rodeo, which is something I really wanted to do because normally when we're doing rodeo stuff with my grandkids, I'm the bull. You know, so this would be an easy where I could just sit there. So we, we go to the rodeo, and then in the rodeo, and a lot of you know this, there's an intermission, and then they called all the kids to go down into the arena. So all these kids, you know, go, they, everybody from 5 to 10, all kids, all children, 5 to 10 years old, come down, into the, and there's hundreds of people there, and all these kids are swarming into the skate, just a big old mess. Of course, any parent who had seen Sound of Freedom uh, not sending their kids. Anybody with me on that? You probably haven't seen that movie. But if you see, you're not sending your kids down there, especially us. I mean, we're there. You know, we're out of state. We're from Ohio. We don't know anybody there. It'd be irresponsible for a parent to send their kid into a mass like this. But their parents weren't there. So Pam and I said, go. You know, you can do this. And so we, we sent them out. And uh, they didn't even want to go. And we said, no, go. You should go. And then they got in this jumble of people, and all of a sudden we're realizing, I, I can't see our kids. You know, where are they? And so they take them out there, and they did a boot scramble. I don't know if you know what a boot scramble is. But they get all the kids lined up in the middle of the rodeo arena. And then they tell them, take off one shoe. And so they all take off one shoe and place it there on the ground. And now go back to the other end of the arena. And so then they're, you know, going back to the other end of the arena with one shoe on. And then they line up. And then they're all looking at where they left their shoe. And then they get the instructions. Okay, when we say go, you're going to race to the middle of the arena, grab your shoe, your shoe, put your shoe on there. And once it's on, race back. First one back wins. All right, so all the kids are on the starting line. And they're all looking to the middle of the arena, which is further than the back of this you know, wall. It's a big arena. So they're trying to spot their shoe. And then while they're getting the instructions right before go, rodeo clowns. Rodeo clowns came in, grabbed all their shoes, and started throwing them all over the other half of the arena. So the kids are watching this. And so then they say, Go! And so here all these kids take off, you know, running on one foot. And, and they're running, and they get there, and then they're looking for their shoes. They finally get their shoes, get them on, run back. Weston's a bit of an overachiever. He got down there in the middle before the instruction, before go. He didn't just take off one shoe. He took off both shoes and his socks, you know, and then so he's looking. He's got all kinds of stuff to find. And so then they, they get their shoes on, and then they run back. And I can tell you, you know, we had two grandkids in that competition, rodeo competition, neither one. Neither one of them won. So, you know, oh well. But they get back, and then they're in this big old herd, and we're wondering, you know, what's going on? And will we ever see those kids again? And then, and then we got them, and we, but I'm just here to tell you, we got both kids back <laughs> with most of their clothing. I mean, we got them. And so, uh, didn't, uh, apparently, you know, we got them. 
Weston had taken off his socks, and he's like, my socks are still out. Well, the rodeo is going. You know, there's wild bulls out there and everything. And, and so to this day, there's two Ohio socks <laughs> that happen to be bright green. Two, you can see it. There's two little specks of bright green out there under the bulls and the rodeos and the, and the you know, whatever, the bullfighters and everything else. But anyway, apparently in our culture, it's bad to lose a kid. You know, if you, if you misplace a child, that's a big deal. You know, I don't know. But so we did not want to do that. We got him back. If that's a big deal to us, that is a bigger deal to God. God does not lose his children. God is telling us if we're truly his, we will overcome. And he gives us these eternal promises that we see starting here in verse 12. He'll never lose us. Here's what it says. He who overcomes, who's proven themselves faithful, proven themselves to be genuine believers, he overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now he keeps saying my God, this is a reference of Jesus to the Father. But when he says, hey, you'll be a pillar, he, this means something to all these people because remember, in AD 17, their whole city was flattened, but then because they were the closest city to the epicenter, they kept experiencing aftershocks for decades afterwards where they had rebuild and it would crumble again and rebuild an aftershock and it would get shaky to the point we know historically that a bunch of people moved out of the city and just made little wooden huts out in the countryside because they didn't want to live there with all the aftershocks that were still knocking things down. He said, I'll make you a temple, a pillar in the temple of my God, a pillar that will stand no matter what. As a matter of fact, today, there are still a couple of pillars that are still standing from Philadelphia, from that day of very little ruins, but they have a couple of pillars there, a couple of pillars there. And he will not go out from it anymore. It's forever. And then he continues this way. And I will write on him the name of my God. Again, this is ownership. You know, you've seen, what is it, Woody, you know, Andy on the bottom of the show. God writes on us his name because we are his. Nothing can erase that. Nothing can change that. I will write in the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And this is the name that is written on Jesus that we probably couldn't even comprehend now if we knew it because we won't be able to fully comprehend who Jesus is until we're there and we see his new name in heaven on the other side. And so that's the basic message to Philadelphia. And so the big thing for us today is, so what? Okay, we just learned all that, but what does that mean to me? How do I apply this in my life? Well, what this is, is a reminder of the challenge of every generation to live with the attitude of the imminent return of Jesus. What we're taught over and over in Scripture is that every generation we are to live with this attitude that Jesus can come back at any moment. Before this sermon's over, afterwards, he could come back anytime. It's gonna happen suddenly. It's gonna happen when we don't expect it. That's what Jesus told us on his earthly ministry. It's what Jesus is telling us later. It's what Paul has told us, John's telling us, 
Peter's telling us, they're all saying the same thing. Of course, we hear that and we're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. We're still, as Christians, supposed to live that way? Well, if he's coming back, why wouldn't he have come back by now, 2,000 years later? Well, actually, the Bible tells us why. Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what he says. Talking about his return. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What are you saying? He's saying the reason Jesus hasn't come back, or, or if you're thinking, hey, it's taken a while, what, what, what's taking so long? It's because of the graciousness of God that he doesn't want any to perish, any at all. He doesn't want any to be separated from him. Now, do people end up separated from God? Yes, they do. But God doesn't desire that any would be separated from him. Then he doubles down on that to say, but for all to come to repentance. I'm still on this other one there. Yeah, but for all, who? All. He doesn't want any to perish, and he wants all to come to repentance. That's God's desire. That's what God wants. And we have a responsibility in this time while we are waiting to do what God has called us to do. To help other people understand the message of God's love, what Jesus has done for us, so that they can repent, admit their sins, and turn to Christ. That's our job right now. And then he wraps it up with verse 13. He, say, he ends it the same way that he ends the other ones. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not, hey, just to the, hey, Philadelphians, just listen to what I said. To, no, to the churches. We should be listening to what he says to all of them. So here we have this encouragement that we have the opportunity to become a faithful church if we keep his word that he will use us to impact his kingdom. That's what he's called us to do. So here's the takeaway this morning. What if God just, what if God just floated down here and said, hey, I'm coming back Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. local time. And so, you know, and we are like, whoa. What would we do different between getting out of church, maybe church would go a little longer, I don't know. But let's say, what would we do different today and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday morning? What plans do we have for those days that we would change those things up? You know, maybe all of a sudden we would take it a lot more serious to freshen up that relationship with somebody we loved that we know didn't know Christ and then boldly share the gospel with them. Uh, what would change? All of a sudden, that argument that you had with your spouse on the way to church probably wouldn't be such a big deal, right? Right? Some of you are going, you know about the argument? <laughs> How would your life change? 
whatever that is, whatever we would change if we knew that Jesus was coming back Wednesday at 3 o'clock, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, they're all telling us, live like that. Do that. Whatever that is, do that. Live knowing Jesus can come back at any time, and he will. We don't know when, but when he does, it'll be suddenly. It'll be when we don't expect it, and everything will change. And we will be removed, if you're a believer, from this earth. And your opportunity to influence people for Christ in that moment will be over. It's the one thing that you can't do in heaven. The one good thing you can't do in heaven is you can't share your faith with non-believers. That's over. That opportunity, done. They still have a chance through seven years of bad stuff, but most will not come to Christ. We're already told that. Live like that. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, most of all, most of us here, Lord, we have a relationship with you and we know we don't deserve it. We've just admitted that we're sinners and understood that you loved us anyway and Christ died to pay for our sins and and we're holding on to that by faith like you've told us to. We know we can't earn it. We can't jump through hoops at that makes you owe us that. We're completely undeserving, so we thank you for that grace. And Father, we know there's people here, our friends, neighbors, people from our community, or maybe traveling through that are here, and they don't know you. And Father, we earnestly pray that you would grab their hearts through your spirit, pull them, draw them to you to the point that they would admit their sins, confess them, and put their faith in Christ alone. But God, for us as believers, we're asking that you would help us to live the way you want us to live. Lord, that we would live like you're coming back any minute, any day, any week. You could come back. That's what you've promised, that we would live like that, that we would take it to heart. Help us to do that. In Christ's name. We pray. Amen.